From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Welcome to the medical news summary for February. We'll be talking about some of the news stories we published this month in JAMA. I'm Jennifer Abbasi, Associate Managing News Editor, and I'm joined by our senior staff writer, Rita Rubin, who's on the line from our D.C. office. Hi, Rita. Hey, Jen. How are you? Great. Good. Okay, so you wrote this wonderful piece for us this month about street medicine. So can you tell us about what that concept is? Yes, it was a really interesting subject to report, and it's really an international movement. Some of the proponents call it a movement, but it's basically providing health care to the rough sleepers. Those are the unsheltered homeless who are living on the street, but, you know, not necessarily right on the street, under overpasses, behind supermarkets, people who just have a bit of a fear of physicians and who research has shown, and not surprisingly, tend to die earlier of things like heart disease. Substance abuse is a is a really big problem. And so people have taken it upon themselves throughout the world. I met when I was in Pittsburgh to report this story. I met a couple of medical residents who had come in for the annual conference about street medicine had come to Pittsburgh and they were from Europe and they were talking about what they're doing in their city. And it's just amazing. It's the physicians and the nurse practitioners and the other folks who are involved in providing this care, feel very passionate about it, and feel like what they're doing is really the true meaning of medicine, that they're really helping the most vulnerable people. Absolutely. So rough sleepers. So this term refers specifically to homeless people who are not sleeping in shelters, right? Right. The unsheltered. Right. And you might think, why aren't they sleeping in shelters? And, you know, there are multiple reasons. I mean, one is in a lot of places, there aren't enough shelter beds. Okay, so that's one reason. And sometimes they want to stay with friends. They formed almost like families and they want to protect each other. And so they don't want to have one person go off to a shelter. And sometimes is one of the street medicine psychiatrists I talked to gave me an example of a man who couldn't make it up the steps to the shelter. And so there can just be even physical obstacles like that. I mean, in the winter, I know in Pittsburgh, I was there in the fall, but not long after I was there, they opened up, as they do every winter, a shelter at a church because they don't want people freezing because it gets pretty cold in Pittsburgh. And so they do provide some shelter, but I would bet you there's still some people sleeping on the street because, again, it could be an issue of not enough beds or just not wanting to leave their friends on the street or what few belongings they have. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of their unique needs are and how clinicians treat people who are living on the street? 
as I mentioned, people living on the street tend to be suspicious of physicians. A lot of them have had bad experiences trying to get health care. And so the people I talked to who are providing street medicine talked about the importance of really establishing trust with the people on the street. And I spent a day with the Pittsburgh team, which is led by Dr. Jim Withers, who really is the pioneer in this field and coined the term street medicine. And this was approximately 25 years ago. So at one point, the street medicine team in Pittsburgh had gotten a report from a city ranger. They have park rangers in city parks in Pittsburgh about a man who appeared to be sleeping under this big abstract sculpture in a park. And so we went to the park. We found the sculpture. We saw a lot of bags underneath, you know, trash bags with apparently this man's belongings, but he wasn't there. And so we just kind of waited off to the side and the outreach team leader for Operation Safety Net in Pittsburgh, that's the street medicine team, you know, spied a guy coming from you know, a distance away, and he was carrying a bag, and I guess the bag was maybe the tip-off. This might have been the person who was sleeping under the statue. And so I was there with another physician, and we just kind of stayed back while the leader of the outreach team, Dan Palka, approached this man, but as the physician pointed out, Dan was not facing the man directly. He was kind of positioned, kind of like a side facing him because he just wanted to be so low key and so not threatening. And, you know, it was sad. I mean, it had just poured in Pittsburgh a couple days earlier. And it was a beautiful day, the day that I went around with them, but it really had poured a couple days earlier. And this man's belongings had all gotten soaked. And at that point, Dan wasn't trying to provide medical care. He just wanted to see like what the guy's urgent needs were. And he needed like a fresh sleeping bag because everything had gotten soaked and some clothes. And so Operation Safety Net was able to provide that. It's tricky. I mean, but it's interesting because as I was riding around the city with them, with the team, they seem to know everyone on the street. And I know Dan, the outreach team leader, has several different cell phones and all the rough sleepers in Pittsburgh, I think, have his uh, phone number on one of his phone numbers on speed dial because they know that they have a relationship now. The people, the Operation Safety Net, the street medicine team, you know, they've developed this. Um, it, you know, it's taken a long time. And I, you know, I was talking to one of the rough sleepers and he basically been on the street for about six years. And so it's a long time to, uh, to get to know these people. And in your story, one of the homeless people passed away, correct? Yeah, it was really sad. I was driving around with the team on a Thursday, and at one point we saw a guy who looked pretty robust to me. He was kind of a big guy, you know, on a street corner with a sign. He was 
hoping to get contributions is in downtown Pittsburgh. So that was on Thursday. And then that Saturday morning, so just two days later, Jim Withers, the physician who founded Operation Safety Net Pittsburgh, emailed me to tell me that that man had died. I know Jim told me he had treated this man for pneumonia, but, you know, as I said, he was standing on a street corner and looked fairly healthy. But this is not an unusual occurrence that somebody, you know, a rough sleeper dies. And in Pittsburgh, they've started a memorial wall with plaques for each of the unsheltered homeless people who died the previous year. And every year on the, the longest night of the year, which is appropriate, in, in late December, and, and this is not just in Pittsburgh, that there are um, cities around the country, and I, for all I know in other countries, to have candlelight vigils to remember the people who had died that year. And, you know, and it's tough. You look at some of the plaques, some have no names on them because no one ever knew their name. And, you know, and some just have their street name. But, um, yeah, sadly, it's growing. I think they put up about a dozen new ones this past year, and one of them was the man that I saw on the street corner. Having spoken to doctors for this story, what do you think draws certain physicians to practicing street medicine? And having observed them, what do you think it takes to be this kind of doctor? Well, I went around Pittsburgh with two physicians, Jim Withers and, as I said, Pat Perry. And it's interesting because both of them were the sons of a physician father and a nurse mother. And they just really early on felt this strong need to help the most vulnerable. And I know Jim Withers at first thought he was going to go to India and help people there, but he realized that there were really vulnerable people who were basically his neighbors in Pittsburgh, and those are the unsheltered homeless. And I think both he and Pat Perry just felt that I think they feel that it's a calling. They feel it's incredibly rewarding because they are helping people who need help. And they find that incredibly rewarding. And I think that's why they do it. And you have to be, I talked to this wonderful nurse practitioner who's with the Operation Safety Net team. And, you know, she said she loves it. And she feels like she sees the people that most people just walk around, you know, and try to avoid. And I think that's true that, you know, a lot of people, including physicians, probably would feel uncomfortable and possibly even feel that it's dangerous to be, you know, like going out and treating people on the street. But I know Jim Withers said he's never in the more than 20 years that he's been doing this, he's never encountered any problems or felt threatened in any way. So do you have a sense that there are programs like this happening in cities around the country? So if there's physicians listening who might want to start doing something like this? Yes, there is the Institute for Street Medicine. It's based in Pittsburgh, and that's the organization that holds an annual meeting 
which I was able to attend. And there were people from all over the world. There were people presenting. I think there was someone from India. There were people from cities in Europe. And there were people from all over the U.S. I mean, the unsheltered homeless, there were particularly large numbers in California. And it's not, you know, I, I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, the weather's nicer. But that's not really why. It's I think one of the main reasons why is because housing is so expensive in California. And so a lot of people end up living on the street. New York has really active street medicine programs. And like I said, I, I heard a really interesting presentation from someone with an organization in Oakland, California. And it really struck me. I think she said, Oakland has a population of 400,000, and 4,000 are rough sleepers. So, you know, 1% of the population. But yeah, Boston has a really long-standing program and has really been a pioneer in this. And one of the Pittsburgh doctors, Pat Perry, spent seven years with the uh, Boston program. There's a couple programs here in Chicago as well where JAMA is based and are video team actually went out and created a video around one of those programs. Yeah, it was interesting to see that video because a lot of the same issues that I saw and talked to people about in Pittsburgh were coming up in Chicago, like the the need to develop trust with people on the street. Right. Well, Rita, I absolutely loved this story, as I told you. I'm so happy you wrote it for us. Thanks, Jen. I enjoyed doing it because I just give the street medicine folks a ton of credit. Absolutely. They're doing a tough job, but they're really helping people. So we published another article this year about caring for a vulnerable population, and that story was about trauma-informed care, and it was written by our freelancer, Bridget Keen. It was interesting to learn in this story how just how prevalent trauma is. So 70% of U.S. adults have had at least one traumatic experience in their lifetime. And for people with substance abuse and mental health disorders, past trauma is believed to be an almost universal experience. And according to one of the people who Bridget interviewed for the story, who is Linda Henderson-Smith. She directs trauma-informed services for children at the National Council for Behavioral Health. So she says that any event or series of events, whether a person experiences them or witnesses them, that profoundly affects their social, physical, psychological, and physiological well-being can traumatize them. So it sort of makes sense that it can be so common. So what this story was about is a trauma-informed approach to healthcare. So this is something that works to restore patients' trust and give them a greater sense of control over their visit. And it's already used somewhat widely in behavioral health, and it's increasingly being used in primary care, obstetrics, and gynecology, and emergency medicine. Some of the tenets of trauma-informed care are being aware that many patients have had a history of trauma, recognizing trauma symptoms, responding to agitated patients in a non-judgmental and supportive way, and empowering patients and giving them some choice and control over their health care. The research is a bit early, but preliminary research is suggesting that not only can this approach be helpful for patients, 
It can also actually improve clinician safety and morale. For example, in one hospital, trauma-informed care training in an emergency department for nurses and other staff helped them reduce the use of patient restraints because patients were less agitated. And violent incidents also declined. Another interesting about the story was that it turns out that for physicians and other healthcare practitioners, understanding and recognizing trauma, so learning about trauma and trauma-informed care can actually help them personally because they can be traumatized during negative patient interactions. They can also experience what's known as secondary trauma, where traumas are passed on from their patient's experience to them when they hear about these experiences or see signs of them. So it was interesting that we had two stories this month about healthcare delivery to vulnerable populations. And both raising the issue of trust. And I thought it was really interesting that Bridget's story pointed out the clinic in New Jersey, the federally qualified health and dental center that serves low-income people in uh, New Jersey, noted that sometimes you don't know that Mm -hmm. the patient has this background. And I just thought it was interesting that they kind of, you know, adapted trauma-informed care. I like the way they put it as a universal precaution. Yeah. That you should just, like, assume that everybody has this. And, I I mean, I was shocked, as I guess you were too, Jen, that 70% of adults do have trauma in their background. Yeah. It was that high. Yeah. I think Bridget did a great job of including a lot of examples that clinicians can take away from their own practices. So one of them was just giving patients the option to do their own throat or vaginal swabs. That's Mm -hmm. something, when you think about it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's something a patient could probably do for themselves, and it would probably make some people feel a lot more comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. And then some of the other things that were interesting were like thinking about the setting of the clinic. One of the things in the story was that a noisy, chaotic emergency department or small enclosed examination rooms can trigger trauma-related symptoms so that those are things that healthcare systems can think about. I know and it just seems like it's common sense, but you have to think about it. I guess people hadn't been thinking about it. Hospitals had been thinking about it. Your physician's offices maybe hadn't been thinking about it. So there's some pilot studies happening now. Uh, Both the National Council for Behavioral Health and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement plan to publish results this year from their pilot program. So we'll have more data about what these programs are doing. But so far, so good. It seems like, according to the story, patients are responding to it and clinicians are responding to it as well. So this is something to keep an eye out for in the future. Thanks for listening. You can check out more podcasts at jamanetworkaudio.com. Rita, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.